Tonight I'd like to uh, speak about aligned with selflessness. It, you know, it doesn't take a lot of clarity to look at the state of the world uh, and feel some despair. <clears throat> I think uh, that uh, given the history, the millennium, given written history, we don't see it improving. You would think you would see an evolution of improvement. Yet as far back as we can go in recorded history, we see the same degree of tension and aggression, war, famine, greed, fear. <clears throat> and yet it feels to me, and perhaps to you as well, that with six and a half billion of us now on the planet, with diminishing resources, with our climate out of control, and with our distribution of wealth so uh, disproportional, I just don't see how it can continue much into the future with this in this disposition. And I, I don't mean to be a doomsdayist. Uh, I don't mean that at all, in fact. <clears throat> I mean that we often have to be pushed to the edge of a precipice before we're willing uh, to shift a paradigms. As an example, in, after Pearl Harbor, uh, FDR called the automakers <clears throat> to his Oval Office, and he said, and I don't remember the exact number, but something like we need 50,000 tanks and 100,000 airplanes in the next three years. And the automaker said, well, I'm not sure we can do that, sir, as much as we would like to, because that would be hard to keep our auto plants open, producing automobiles, and add that additional burden to our assembly lines. And FDR said, wait a minute. You don't understand. There will be no more automobiles being made for the next three years, or for however long it takes. There will only be tanks and airplanes. And in fact, for the following three years, not only those numbers were met, but many more than that. It was a shift of paradigm. It was an absolute refocusing, a new dimension for the automakers and for the whole country. It feels to me that we're on the point of that paradigm shift. And before there's a paradigm shift, there is a moment of deep despair in most of us, in which we don't see any other resources. We don't see any other possibilities available. And then, out of the creative medium of the universe comes a new shift, a new way of perceiving that then takes us into the future, hopefully. That shift to paradigm, in my belief, has to do with 
the sense of self moving into selflessness. The question I would have for all of us is, does Buddhism have anything to say about that paradigm shift? My answer may surprise you. It may and it may not. It's not an unqualified yes. It's more about how we practice, what we practice, the way we practice, as to whether we will shift paradigms or continue in the one we have already uh, perpetuated. And so tonight, I, the reason this theme feels like it holds a lot of passion for me is that I just wrote a book about it. And, <laughs> and it's still very current in my, my thinking. But it feels also very true. As I begin to open up to what it means to shift paradigms, I'm reminded by what my teacher said when I was a monk leaving my home monastery in Thailand for the last time. And my teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, said to me, uh, do you plan on teaching? And I said, I have no idea. <clears throat> he says, well, if you do, teach anatta, selflessness, or there, anatta is the frame of reference that says, for the Buddha's teaching, that says there is no permanent abiding entity called me. He says, teach anatta and don't be afraid to shake the people you teach. And so I kind of, I let that sort of float among other things that he had said to me and it really didn't take hold for almost three decades. And then it took hold because I felt what would happen if we didn't addressed this subject straight on. I could see the cliff drawing near. And I believe it truly is this paradigm shift. It's not a shift of philosophy. One of the reasons I so appreciate teaching with Christina is she knows that. Not everyone does. And when you teach alongside, even though she may use different language, miss different metaphors, have a different style, when you teach along somebody who understands this principle of anatta, to in, has realized it in their bones, it's a very nice teaching team. Last night she took us to a deep understanding of contentment. What I appreciate about this word contentment is it never stops. It's an endless, it's an infinite dimension. And what opens the gate to further contentment, because what constricts contentment is the working of the egoic workings within ourselves that keep us in a state of reserve or uh, constriction or uh, in some form of resistance to the moment at hand. And so as long as the sense of self is actively engaged in the moment, complete contentment is not accessible. To access complete contentment, we have to be, we have to shift paradigms. And many of us are driven 
by the word contentment, but we will reach a point as we open up to further and further contentment in which we feel the contractions that we create within ourselves that inhibit further relaxation, further release. And then we have to go into that area of obstruction to see if we can understand that so that full and complete contentment is at hand. So this talk, I feel, dovetails very nicely on last night's talk. So this principle of anatta in Buddhism is not always the first uh, point that is taught. In fact, it is, if you look at and become familiar with the teachings of the Buddha, it is the central most important point in Buddhism, without a doubt. In fact, nothing else works unless this is embraced. Buddhism, as practiced in this culture, can be seen as a form of sign of self-improvement, of self-betterment, of becoming a little nicer here, a little more kind here, of adding this and diminishing that. And although it can be seen or heard when you read the suttas in that, that's not where I believe the Buddha was pointing. The Buddha is pointing to the absolute qualities of these conditions, of these states, which can only occur when we get out of the way and release any resistance to them whatsoever. Also in this culture, we have a growing need to sort of pick the Buddha's, cherry pick the Buddha's teaching. We like this, we don't like that. That one doesn't fit our, and accommodate our style, our need for comfort. So let's do a little bit of this, and we'll take this and put it over here, and now we'll have this part, but we won't take that part. To me, the teaching is a resounding whole. Nothing can be excluded. Nothing of the Eightfold Path can be omitted. And what I want to show tonight is how when we follow each step in lockstep with, the, uh, al with alignment to this sense of anatta, selflessness, that everything works in conjunction with everything else in a complete uh, and total alignment and makes the practice uh, rather obvious to us. Now, let's just back away for a moment because um, what I'm going to take you on is kind of like, uh, I'm going to kind of show you the topographical area of this subject. It's a little bit like you went to a, a, a national park and, did, and went to the visitor center of a national park. And the national park, you know, as most national park visitor centers have, they have this display of what the park looks like on this kind of plastic uh, sheet. And if it's, you know, if you're in the <laughs> Cascades or Yosemite or whatever, so it'll have everything kind of pointed out. You are here with a big red arrow and then the park laid out to you. And then you decide where you want to go in the park. You decide whether you want to ascend the mountains or whether you want to go down in the valleys, whether this looks too challenging or that looks too difficult. And so I'm just going to lay out the topographical view of the land. And you'll have to decide whether you want to go along. For some of you, just hearing the topographical coverage is enough. 
You don't want any part of the journey. You don't want to go hiking. Others of you want to go hiking and really dig into the dirt of this thing. And so whatever you want to do is fine. I'm not going to push you beyond your willingness to come. But I do think it's important for us to have a good sense of what the geographics of this subject consist of. Okay? Because it seems to be scarier than what it is. Let me assure you, it is not scary at all. It's only fearful when you look at it from some abstract point of view, not when you're actually realizing it whatsoever. So let's look at how the brain organizes perception. And it's an evolutionary organ that for its own safety had to organize perception so that it sees things and thinks about things so that it can get away from things in terms of its need for, for safety. If it sees a lion, it's got to find a tree and get up that tree. And so much of our history has, our brain organ has had to configure itself in terms of what it sees and who is seeing it with some abstract thought about what it thinks about what is happening and then finding the correct path to escaping the danger that might be bearing down. So it has organized reality as a subject-object point of view. The world is out there, and I am in here looking at it. That is how it organizes reality. That does not happen to be the truth of reality. That is how perception has organized itself from a safety dimension. OK, fair enough. But when we look out of our eyes, it seems to hold that particular view. Subject, object, me, you. In fact, if we were honest with ourselves, we would see, if we have, to, we have to be very honest with ourselves, we would actually see ourselves as being the center of the universe, wouldn't we? Every experience we ever have had has come in to me. And though other people may be having an experience, that doesn't really affect me. But everything that you're doing, I see in I am the center. And so our default position is a kind of arrogance, really, within ourselves, in which other people are there. But there's then me who perceives and holds what other people are doing. In fact, you've never had an experience in which you have not been the center. Isn't that amazing? Now, when we organize our life around that perception, you can see the chaos that ensues because everybody thinks they're the center. This is, everyone then has the right and the opinionation and the position, the center, to act upon the world in kind of indiscriminate ways so that it's for their self-serving. And that is the reason the world looks the way it does. Just let it, just feel it in you, because I want you to feel the crisis. We won't move unless we feel crisis. That's the nature of our species, you know. People think we're going to change the climate a hundred years before we see the oceans rise. No, we're going to change it when the ocean comes into our home. Something needs to be done here, we'll say. That's the kind of species we are. We aren't foresightful. 
Okay. So when we sit down in meditation, this continuous theme of me and experiences plays forth through the entire time we're sitting, does it not? And it don't seem to be able to shake it off. In fact, we hear the words anatta if we're reading Buddhist literature or even in Dharma talks, but no matter what happens, even if I perceive have a perception or an observation of emptiness, which given a persistent uh, retreat environment, that observation will and can be seen. Still, when I come back from that observation, I feel very much intact. In fact, I can claim reference to what I just saw. Oh, I just had an experience of being empty, I will say. And I will somehow feel better about my meditation as me having had that experience. So everything we see, even in the sense of truth about ourselves, seems to feed the egoic sense of what, of our own arrogance about what we've seen. Then we get kind of clever. And so we say, okay, well, since it's going to be with me all this time, I'll kind of clean it up. So I'll have a gentler, kinder sense of me, kind of that I will, the spiritual side, as adverse to the, its brother, which is that egoic sense that I'm trying to get rid of. So I will polish the kinder and gentler sense of me so that I can feel good about myself and no longer have these tendencies of selfishness and fear, etc that seem to be driving most of the world. <clears throat> but if we're honest, this sense of me and any of its forms and any of its disposition still holds a contraction and a view and a sentiment and a perception that keeps me from joining life. I feel outside of life. I feel like I am observing life and life is happening across this barrier of space and time called me. So now we enter Buddhism and we begin to look at how it is, what, what is it that we can do so that we can get out of this fixation of self? How, what does the Buddha tell us? What, what is the path out of this fixation of me? Most of us have it wrong. So listen carefully, because I believe that it has to align itself from the first time, for, for when you first sit down. And it has to be in alignment all the way. Anatta is not something that you come on 5, 10, 15 years after you started sitting. It's something you have to bring on and incline your mind towards, even from the beginning. So let's look at how that can line up. It is not scary. It's very easy, but it does require some adjustments that some of us need to make, quite likely, in our meditation practice so that we can join and be in alignment with that particular understanding. Now, the first thing is, the Buddha teaches, is wise view. Now, I'm willing to talk about three of the eight uh, steps of the Eightfold Path, so I'm not claiming that I'm going to get through them all, 
but the talk has to be condensed down just to get these three uh, so that you have some sense of how they line up. First of all, Wise view is not just a philosophical understanding of something. It's an intimation that life is more than what we have taken it to be. When we look out of our eyes, the view, what we take life to be, as I mentioned, is very differential. It's separate. It's me outside looking in. And for many of us, that sense of differentiation, that sense of separation works for us. And I'll tell you, the only way it'll work so that it won't create problems is if you, we, who are differentiating and isolating life from this unwise view that we hold, externalize sources of pain so that we don't claim that we're responsible for our own suffering. That's how it works. So from somebody who holds an unwise view, we have to blame away all sources of our suffering. It's our neighbor, it's the barking dog, it's our wife, it's the boss, it's our this, it's our that. And as long as we can do that, then we stay very, we feel consolidated and somewhat our world is working. As soon as we develop some level of understanding so that we realize that we are, that all pain is self-induced, that system breaks down. Now we can no longer differentiate ourselves contentedly. That's the first step in coming into a true order, the true order of life. It's a hard step, and much of what we're doing here is just to recognize the truth of where our suffering lies that it is self-induced. And so much of what our training or our teaching has been up until this point has been just to encourage that perception, that insight. Now, wise view, wise view comes from a sense of the utter futility of isolating and separation, separating and differentiating out life so that I'm here and you're there. That doesn't work, we realize that. And as quieter, as we get quieter, as our desires and fears become less um, dramatic, as we tone down the volume of our own life so that we are quieter within ourselves, we begin to sense something in us that feels very connected. It feels, in fact, uh, New York Times some years ago said that 50% of the population had had an experience that they, in which they felt, uh, they called it a mystical experience, felt connected with life in a way that they usually did not. What was interesting is that 80% of the 50% who did have that experience never wanted that experience again. It shook the apple cart. I don't, you know, it's like too radical. But for those of us, we're probably the other 20%, I hope. We th there's a sensing, there's a sensing. When we're quiet, not from our mind, because our mind will never show us that, but there's a sensing of feeling that 
this is a limited perspective, my subject-object, and that, th that we're more connected. I always like to match science with wise view because I think it validates those of us who live within that world of science. If you take a pair of electrons, just stay with me for a second, it gets interesting. <laughs> you take a pair of electrons that is circling a nucleus of an atom. Each of those pairs are revolving in opposite direction. One is going in a plus direction, maybe clockwise. One is going in a minus direction. Okay. Now you take that pair of electrons and you separate them out by vast dif distances. And you change the rotation of one of those electrons. Instantaneously, no matter how far away that other electron is, even if it is across the universe, instantly, instantly changes right along with You see, it's not a communication. It's not one electron speaking to the other, because that would go at the speed of light. It's the same. They are the same electrons. They are one in the same thing. On the atomic level, this is quantum mechanics. Is it, that is known. But quantum mechanics, the, the world of the small, builds. It's the building block for the world of the large. We just lose that commonality, that oneness of things from the way we perceive. It's still here with us, and we sense it in our hearts. So to bring that sense out, to make that our view, to say, okay, although I may not see it with my eyes, I am not going to follow the logic of my eyes, the view of the world. I'm going to live interconnectedly. I'm going to live in terms of interconnection. You see, this starts drawing us together. Just think of the word interconnection and you start coming together in interconnection. Separation, you start distancing yourself. So, okay, so now I've got a view that starts bringing things together in a sequential way so that we begin to sense or begin to work in cooperation with what we sense is going on in ourselves. This is tremendously important. It's tremendously important. It holds the whole of the Dharma because if you don't know where you're going, you're going to paddle aimlessly. And you're actually, within that paddling, you're going to be reinforcing the old and unwise view that you hold. You're going to be reinforcing the sense of self, not coming to a new understanding, a new view of the world. And so most of us, when we sit down, we just bring the old view up and we start working with it. And that actually, said very gently, reinforces the sense of separation. Okay, so now I've got unwise view so that it begins to make some sense. What do we do next? We need an intentionality. So that we often, in the groups, 
I'm doing, somebody will see something. And I say, okay, you see that what you really, you're, you see how you treat yourself. You see the despairing way you look upon yourself. Set an intention right now while you're seeing that, that you are not going to die that way. Set it. Because if you don't, you'll just keep seeing it, but you will never move towards the opposite direction. So that intentionality is the crucial link in getting our energy um, in movement towards the view, the new view that we are holding. And that intentionality is, well, let me show you what it's like not to have an intentionality. Some of you, I'm sure, have gone to some of these chanting sessions with Krishna Das or other renowned chanters. And I have done the same. Then you Sri Ram, Sri Ram, and you feel very at one. I mean, it really takes you into a heart space that gladdens the heart and eliminates some of the visual obstructions to a sense of oneness. The problem is there's no intention to carry that forth. And so after the chanting, people come back into their usual normal lives and drive off. And I've even seen people honk at each other and swear at each other on the way out of the <laughs> parking lot. <laughs> OK, so let me make it a little more personal now, because some of you might not have gone to a chanting. <laughs> what is happening to you on retreat is your view is changing. You are becoming more connected. That is what happens. That is why you suddenly, the first few days, the first couple of days, there's a lot of chaos, a lot of drama that comes up. It's because we are used to acting upon ourselves with such condemnation, with such unkindness. And as the week unfolds, we begin to invite a, com a companionship with ourselves, a, a uh, kind relationship with ourselves. And so we are beginning to connect and interconnect with ourselves in ways that we haven't. Instead of just being abusive, there's a pause, there's a consideration, there's a warming that goes on. And that leads to a sense of interconnectedness. That's wise view working in terms and in, in the process of the meditation practice. But when you get out of here to leave, you may not be inclined to continue within that wise view. You may not be inclined to see life or to work upon life as an interconnected fabric. You may be thrown back upon your old conditioning and a day out or two days out or three days out when the meditation effect has waned in you, you will find yourself or could find yourself just as argumentative, just as reactive as you ever were. It's because the inclination the intentionality wasn't maintained. And that's the reason that most of us feel so despondent and wondering, why can't I keep this going? We can't keep it going because you don't want to keep it going. Because you aren't working in cooperation with the way it needs to work in order to keep it going. This is very demanding. But the world's dying. And so, okay, so let's just follow me a while yet. So let's look a little further at intentionality. 
because it's, it's very important to understand that there are two levels of intentionality. There's a primary level of intentionality that works within all of us, and that is the true yearning of the heart for this sense of absolute contentment or this sense of absolute love, or when a word resonates with you, like contentment, like love, like uh, emptiness, or whatever it might be, awareness or whatever, there is a deep resonance within oneself. And that intentionality, that primary intentionality to come to an absolute, because it's, this, this primary intention is an absolute intention. Now that absolute intention gets sidetracked by secondary intentions, by the worldly intentions we hold. So instead of this sense of working effortfully towards unification and interconnectedness, that intention bubbles up through the brain and it comes out as subject and object. And so the intention becomes fractured. It says, oh, I want something. What I want is what I need to feel complete. Originally, that primary intention was the sense of, of completion here and now that didn't need anything added to it. But when it comes through the mind, because of the way the mind organizes data, it sees the desire for completion as outside of itself. And therefore, it looks for completion in worldly material or relationship or whatever it is. And then we try to bring it in as the satisfying link to form that kind of union from which the desire is attempting to complete, which originally came from the primary intention to be at one with, to be at one with. And we keep chasing our desires, thinking that if we can just do it enough or get the right person, the right mate, the right amount of money, the right this, the right status, the right this, then we will at, find complete peace within ourselves. Have you? Average age in this room is 40. Mold. <laughs> Multiplied by 100 is 4,000 years of human history in this room. If you have found contentment in your desires, please raise your hand. Are we going to have to live another 4,000 years of human history to prove this same fact doesn't work? Enough. Let us go to the primary intention and feed it, which is being held by wise view. Now, interconnection is, is a, it's an approximate. It's not the fact. The, the truth is not held together like popcorn on a string or beads on a string. But it's a, it feels safe, doesn't it? It feels like, yeah, that's what I mean, that we're love take, I mean, it's like, let's move this thing together. That's all that's needed, is start moving it together to be on a corrected course. If we keep moving it outward, it's not gonna ever come back around. 
It's got to be moved together. Everything we do, everything we teach is meant to move this thing together so that we can begin to not react to things, but hold them, to see them, to allow them to be. Every way we frame the meditation is to connect with things. That's the point. But our lives have to have that disposition, not just our meditation practice. Wise livelihood was another link. Wise action. Now, if you have wise view without intention, as I mentioned, it kind of goes flat. It's like there's nothing driving it. If you have wise view and unwise intention, which is where most of us fall flat, we have wise view, we have this sense of working towards interconnection, but an unwise intention, which means we're trying to overcome an obstacle or we're setting up an ambitious relationship to what it is that we want or we're uh, working so that we try to surmount the problem or we're trying to self-improve, then we may have wise view, but with unwise intention, the thing gets neutralized. We're working in opposition to the view we have. So what does wise intention look like when it's sighted, when it's in alignment with wise view? Well, wise view says that unity is inherent. It doesn't mean that we have to go out and try to claim unity. It's inherent. And so wise intention says, okay, if, if my resisting life keeps it fractured and differentiated, then what I need to do is to release that resistance. So my intention is to release the resistances I have so that I can work in cooperation with the view of connection. And there's also, unwise, you can have an unwise view and an unwise intention, but I won't go into that. Anyway, the whole thing only works when there is wisdom all along the way. One other thing about intentionality, even though some of us find ourselves still playing out our secondary intentions, our need for desire and the fear and trying to grasp the world and bring it in, you don't have to change that. You don't have to pull back because what you have, the only thing that works in this thing is wisdom, is understanding. You have to see the value you're getting from reaching towards the world in that way and you have to see the limitation of what it doesn't provide. And the Buddha assures us that the pain of what of the the pain of the payoff isn't worth the payoff does that make sense or the payoff is not worth the pain so if you just watch and see okay so what does desire feel like what does it do how are you it's a very uncomfortable and unpleasant state of mind first of all and then even when you have something, how long does it last? How long does it satisfy? If you really bring attention to that secondary intention, 
that energy that was held within the secondary intention when it's no longer believed or invested in becomes the primary intention. It's not like you have to convert it. That energy goes to the primary intention and you, get, you feel the pull towards greater unity. That yearning of heart, that yearning of heart becomes overbearing. Just becomes, ah, And now there's wise effort. In four minutes. <laughs> so now wise effort, you see, if it's volitional effort, it starts out as volitional effort because that's the only effort we know. You know, we try to do something. We put a, put a force and intention behind it. And that works for a while and things happen, as I mentioned in our question and answer period, that volitional effort establishes contact and stability of mind by bringing the attention back one, over and over. So at some point, though, uh, you begin to say, OK, so what does effort look like when it's in accordance with wise view and wise intention? If I'm going to reconnect, I can't muscle my way into that. So what does it look like? And I call it the four R's of wise effort. The four R's is, are relax, release, relinquish, and rejoin. Very quickly, relaxing looks like rejoin. It, it's simply not letting the resistances that create the stress and the pushback of life. It's, it's releasing the muscle tension associated with that pushback. So you're psychically releasing. You're physically releasing life to come in at you because you want to rejoin it, because it is one thing, because it's interconnected, because that's your intention. And that's where the primary intention is pushing you. It looks like release. And release is the need to stop controlling the outcome. We release the need to control the outcome. It's what I was mentioning in the walking meditation this morning, is that you just don't put your agenda forth. This doesn't mean that you don't have an agenda or you don't have goals. It just doesn't create the tension associated with the movement to getting there. And it's, life is coming at us at all times. If we want to learn from life, we have to be open to it. We have to be receptive to it. And so this releasing is the release and the need to constantly control everything within our environment. And many of us are, have enormous tension in relationship to control. We, that's the only way we can keep life safe for ourselves, we feel. And so control itself, or just looking at the need to control, has tremendous implications for our life. But you can see life doesn't get in when you're pushing it away or trying to manipulate it. And we want life to get in, because that's the view. And then there's relinquish. Relinquish I really like, because it's letting go of what's inauthentic and unnatural. And I'll just think of the word authentic. Many of us are, have a deep spiritual response to that word. But we really don't know what it means. What does it mean to be? Does it mean that I'm raging at my anger and yelling at? Is that authentic? Because I'm feeling the anger, I'll no. 
as you start learning about oneself, you see that what's authentic are the very thoughts, the very stories we tell ourselves. And to release ourselves from the storyline of our life, to come into a natural expression, to abide in life boundlessly. And to rejoin. No matter what is going on within us, the imperative within us is to rejoin. If I'm angry, I don't let the anger create distance. I join, I rejoin the anger. I join it. I, I'm, I'm willing to completely allow it to be. And therefore, I don't disjoin or, or separate myself out from the object of the anger. And slowly, no state of mind can take you away from anything because you simply won't let it. You join every state of mind. When every state of mind is joined, it neutralizes the tendency to turn away, to detach yourself from it. And that's the kind of commitment it takes because that's the kind of intention you're giving your commitment. Your energy, your effort is related to your intention, which is related to your view. And so one falls in lockstep with the next each supporting the commitment you have to bettering the world and bettering yourself within it. It's a paradigm shift, people. It's not business as usual. This isn't self-tampering. It's self-understanding. And each of us have the capacity within our hearts to make this work. All we need, all we need is the intention to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to die within this old view. My life is not going to serve separation. May it be so for all of us. Can we sit for a minute or two? As you sit quietly, form an intention for your life. If you feel inspired towards something, hopefully wise view, establish that intention. Don't let doubt come in and say, I, I can't do it. This is too much. It is not too much for you.
Okay, good. So we'll have a walking period until 8.45. Please feel free to leave as you wish.